Well, good morning, everyone. Well, we can do better than that. Good morning, everyone. Are you all still full from Thanksgiving? Are you are you lulled to sleep by all that? What's the there's a that's what it is. Tryptophan, tryptophan. A lot of people. I like Thanksgiving because naps in the afternoon are acceptable. No one looks down on you for just falling asleep right after dinner in the couch in public. It's wonderful. Well, I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. It's good to see all of you. Before we dive in, if you have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 21 is where we're going to spend some time. Before we dive into Luke chapter 21, let me just double down on an announcement that Tim gave a few moments ago. I was reading an article in the Santa Monica Daily Press about how the food banks are experiencing an incredibly high demand, that they, that they, during COVID, were experiencing a large demand, and that demand has increased and supply has decreased. And so uh, in the article in the Daily Press, they said that the Westside Food Bank specifically is struggling uh, to feed those who, have, uh, who are hungry and those who are struggling to get groceries and food on the table. And so I, I, thought, I thought, hey, we, should, we as a church need to be about caring for the hungry. Jesus said, when I was hungry, did you feed me? And uh, we want to be the kind of church that says, yes. So, uh, so we reached out to the, the West Side Food Bank and said, what do you need? How can we as a church bless you? And they said, cereal. And we said, okay, great. We can do cereal. How much cereal do you need? What would bless you guys? And they got back to us and they said, man, if you could... If you could do 400 boxes of cereal, that would really bless the, us as a food bank as we're trying to collect shelf-stable products. And I sort of, we thought about it and said, 400, get out of town, right? We can do 400 in our sleep. So we went back and said, how about 1,000? And they got back and said, 1,000 uh, would be incredible. We had no idea. You guys really, you're really going for it. And we said, we're going for it. So, um, so we're going to do 1,000 boxes, gather them and bring them between now and December 19th. Here's, as, we're, as you're opening to Luke chapter 21, just do this right now as an act of worship. Either write the word cereal down somewhere, write it on your hand, tell your neighbor or spouse or roommate, uh, put it in your reminders app in your phone or your notes, add it to your shopping list. Do that now so you don't forget. We would like to, again, like we said, on December 19th, we would like to have a thousand boxes of cereal that we can give to the food bank to help equip them for the work that they do in directly caring for those who have great need this season. And I think that's what it looks like to be a church especially in the Christmas season. Can I get an amen? amen. All right, I'll take that. All right, uh, Luke chapter 21. Uh, it's good to be with all of you. Welcome to those of you who are online, those of you who are in person. Again, I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. This is the first week in a season of the church called Advent. Some of you have a lot of familiarity with Advent. Some of you grew up in churches that never talked about Advent. The word Advent just means coming. And so the church celebrates the coming of Jesus. We do that actually in two ways as a church. One, we celebrate the coming of Jesus on Christmas morning as we look forward to Christmas morning, a celebration of what we call the first coming of Christ, right? That we believe as Christians that Christmas is not just about all the things that we make it about, but rather Christmas is about God out of his love for his people, sending himself, sending his son Jesus 
in flesh, that God with us, Jesus in flesh, was born, right, that the light entered into the darkness. We are doing Advent uh, uh, candles. In this case, they're Advent lanterns this year. Um, and we talked about this a little bit last week. All of our reflections in Advent this year at the beginning will be on the light in the darkness. Because we believe that Christmas is really about the light of God entering into the darkness. And we need the light of God. Amen? Yeah, you know somebody, some of you here this morning, some of you know somebody who needs the light of God. And so we look forward to the light growing, and then we celebrate Christmas morning, Christmas Eve, Christmas morning, the light of God come into the world to cast out the darkness. That is some good news. So these lanterns will be lit each week at the beginning of service. So that's the first coming of Jesus, which we celebrate. But in addition to Advent... We look forward, which again means coming, we look forward to the second coming of Jesus. And that is to believe that we as Christians, we maintain that Jesus, who is God in flesh, was born of a virgin, that he lived a life, a life that we only aspire in our best to be able to live. He lived a perfect life, which we can't seem to get anywhere near close perfection, that Jesus died on a cross. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He was raised again on the third day. He ascended to be with the Father, to sit at the right hand of the Father, and promised that he would return one day to make all things right. And we look forward to that day. So we look forward to celebrating Christmas morning, celebrating the first coming of God. And we look forward to the second coming, a day that we still wait for in great anticipation. A day that is about God coming to make all things right, finally, completely. A day when we believe that justice will actually come, perfect justice will be brought, right? That darkness will be cast out and dealt with. That, 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 that forgiveness will be sort of experienced as, as we are in the very presence of God on that day. We long for the second coming of God. And so that means that we enter a season called Advent, which is a season of waiting. We are waiting for Christmas morning. We are waiting for the second coming of Christ. And waiting is hard. Now, we wait all the time, don't we, right? We are forced to wait constantly, but rarely do we wait with any sort of intentionality. This year, if you've been reading the newspapers, you're probably well aware of supply chain issues. Right? Some of you are going to be waiting for Christmas morning. Some kids you know are going to be waiting for Christmas parent, presents after Christmas comes. Right? There's going to be some extra special waiting this year because it's stuck on a ship somewhere between here and China. We're waiting, and we don't like waiting. We live in an on-demand world. Movies are on-demand. Music, on-demand. Entertainment, on-demand. Isn't that language so interesting? on demand. It's not upon request, it's on demand. As though those would want you to, to say to you, you have the right to demand music when you want it, movies when you want it, entertainment when you want it. We've got this for you on demand. You demand it and you'll get it. Well, in an on-demand world, waiting is difficult. And the beautiful thing about Advent 
is that it is a season of intentional waiting. A season where we get to wait purposefully. Now, some of you are like, I don't want to wait at all. I don't like waiting. But we have to wait. But often when we are waiting, we are not waiting because we want to. Again, we're waiting because we have to. And very rarely do we actually take advantage of what God wants to do in us and give to us while we are waiting. And so this year, the beauty of this moment, of this season of Advent is that it invites us to wait, to wait with intentionality. And in the middle of our waiting, God wants to give us something to hold on to. This is my hope for us this morning, that we would see that in the middle of our waiting, God wants to give us a gift, because Christmas is not just about giving, it's about receiving the gift that God has given us. God wants to give us the gift of his son Jesus, but he has a gift for you right now if you are waiting, and you're tired of waiting, and that gift is hope. The text we're going to look at this morning in Luke chapter 21 is a text that deals with Jesus talking about the second coming and the hope that he has to offer. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to read this text and then we will spend a few minutes in it together. This is Luke chapter 21. We're going to begin at verse 25. Luke chapter 21. We're going to begin at verse 25. All right. If you've got it, say got it. All right, good. Luke chapter 21, starting at verse 25. It says, this is Jesus speaking. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time they will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Verse 29. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the leaves, and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you will know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful. Or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Verse 36. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that's about to happen. And that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, in the text that we're looking at, Jesus is speaking about his 
second coming. And the text that we just read around that text deals with all kinds of complexity. Part of what Jesus is speaking about is the destruction of the temple, which will come to pass uh, shortly after he ascends to the Father. We can read about that in the book of Acts. But he's not just talking about that moment. He seems to speak of a future moment, a moment that if you've been with us in the Minor Prophet series, we has been called the Day of the Lord. And this is a day in the future, in the future for not just the, the people Jesus is speaking to, but for us today here as well. And in this text, Jesus is talking about how they are waiting for this moment, what it will be like, and what they can do in the meanwhile. So here's our outline for this morning. Here's where I plan to go. We're going to talk about hope together. It's the first week of Advent. We'll talk about hope. And we're going to do that by first talking about why we need hope why we need hope, secondly, how we get hope, how we get hope, and thirdly, what do we do with hope? What do we do with hope? So why we need it, how we get it, and what we do with it. Let's begin with why we need hope. It seems relatively obvious, doesn't it, that we need hope. Things are chaotic, in verse 25 and 26, Jesus is talking about these signs that will take place. And there's a lack of clarity about what they will specifically look like. But the picture Jesus paints is one in which the world is in chaos. It feels a little bit like the world is in chaos, doesn't it? You guys remember the good old days? You remember 2019? Oh, man. Those were the good old days, weren't they? Right? Now, for some of us, we're, that's not what we think about when we think about the good old days, but it's been a crazy couple of years, and things very much feel chaotic. We've been through chaos. And here's the beautiful thing that Jesus says in this text in Luke 21. When many people experience chaos in the world, their first reaction is to ask, God, where are you? But Jesus doesn't say, look around and see the chaos and then wonder where I am. Rather, Jesus says, look around and see the chaos and know that it is only a sign pointing to the reality that I am both in control and that I am coming soon. We don't get to look at chaos and just move quickly to despair. We get to have hope. Jesus says there will be chaos. There will be wars and revolutions and earthquakes and famines. People will be filled with both fear and distress. And we all do this sometimes when reading the newspaper, sometimes when just going about our everyday lives. We experience despair. We experience chaos. And when you experience chaos, when you experience difficulty in your life, and many of you here are experiencing some sort of chaos now, you probably do one of three things. The first group of people that's here when you experience chaos is that you are filled with despair. Despair is literally the word hopelessness. You're filled with hopelessness. You're tempted to sort of give up on life. You get downtrodden very easily. And what happens is you get overwhelmed with anxiety because at the root of anxiety is ultimately a fear that things are not going to turn out the way you want them to, the way you think they should. And so we get filled with despair, filled with anxiety, and it can lead for many of us to a kind of existential crisis. 
I don't know if you've been reading, but we are experiencing a crisis of anxiety in our society. Young people are filled with anxiety. I pastorally, in my conversations with you, it seems like anxiety may be the most common problem we face. And we know that anxiety never satisfies, does it? It never leads to greater wholeness. No one's ever satisfied or fulfilled in the midst of despair. Despair leads to all kinds of destructive behaviors. This year in our country, we will see 100,000 people who will die of an overdose. This year, we will see almost 50,000 people end their own lives with those numbers tending up amongst young people. And do you know what we call these kinds of deaths among others? We call them deaths of despair. That's the language we use around these kinds of deaths. Deaths of despair. These are literal deaths of hopelessness. When you experience despair or anxiety or you're filled with dread... You, you tend to get self-destructive. You do things that aren't good for you, and they're not good for others. They're not good for your family. They're not good for your neighbors. And you struggle to move forward. You struggle to carry on. You are filled with despair. Some of you this morning are filled with despair because of a whole range of things that you are facing right now. Others of us, so some of us go there, maybe that describes you, you move to despair. Others of us, we ignore it, right? When we experience difficulty, we're the second group of people, we ignore things. We distract ourselves because we can't bear the difficulties around us. And this is where I think a lot of us hang out. We choose just not to think about it. Let me just stay active, stay busy, Right? We, we don't want to think about it too much. And so we avoid despair because we just don't let ourselves go there. But there's no hope either. It's just sort of distraction. The Bible we call this, we, we kind of, we eat, we drink, and we kind of attempt to be merry in the middle of this season. We flirt with ancient ideas like stoicism, which never allow us to feel too much, which also never allow us to feel disappointed. Neil Postman wrote a book in the 1980s, which I can't believe he wrote it in the 1980s because every year it feels more true. And that book is called Amusing Ourselves to Death. In that book, one of his central premises is that we are really afraid as a people of moving into a 1984 Orwellian kind of world. And if you've read 1984 and you read, I've read it recently, you'll discover, wow, so much of what's happening in that book feels like it's prophetic, feels like it's coming true. But Neil Postman argues in his work, Amusing Ourselves to Death, that the book we often forget about is the book Brave New World by Huxley. Now, Huxley's Brave New World is so different than 1984 because 1984 sort of sees that the challenge is going to be tyranny. But the challenge, according to Huxley, facing us today, what he predicted, is that we would, we would instead of freaking out constantly about tyranny, which certainly is real and is a thing. Instead, Huxley argued that we failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. What do we do when we go through difficult times? We distract ourselves 
constantly. And we've never had more options or opportunities to distract ourselves. One of my biggest sort of concerns for us as a church, right, is that either we feel too much or we don't feel at all because we look for ways to constantly distract ourselves. So some of you, when you experience despair right, or, or, or difficulty in life, you move to despair. Others of you, you just distract yourself. And then there's a third group of people, and maybe this is you, maybe you're a little bit of all of these at different times. The third group of people are people who hope. People who hope. And by hope here, I mean you choose to put your hope in something. You look around, you see difficulty in the world, and then you say, you know, I'm going to choose to be optimistic. We use that word hope all the time, don't we? Right? And often when we talk about hope in our society, we mean sort of a desired but unexpected outcome. We call our friends, hey, I hope everything is okay. Hey, I, I hope that the doctor comes back with a diagnosis that you're all right. Hey, I hope things work out at work. Hey, I hope you can work things out with your family. Hey, I hope, I hope you get this message, right? We, we use the word hope. I hope my team wins the game, right? I hope, I, we, we use the word hope for, and it's a stand-in essentially for, um, I, 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 this is my preferred, desired, but unexpected outcome. And when things are difficult in the world, we look for places to put this kind of optimism. Some of us put it in the next generation. We say to the next generation, the world's a wreck. The next generation will fix it, right? We look at the kids and we say, don't worry, kids. You're going to fix all the mess that we have made. No pressure. Or we put our hope in mankind. We turn on the TV and we say, hey, our kind of people are marching, and they're marching for the right causes in the right ways, and therefore, that's the future. I feel good about it. Or we have hope in progress. We look around and we go, hey, there's technological progress. There's, you know, progress in medicine. Okay, this is good. We're making progress. Some of us, we put hope in the government, or at least we do every few years, when our side is awarded victory. Recently, I've noticed that we have a tendency to hope in the defeat of our enemies. There seems to be an emerging trend in American life today which suggests that the way that we can really have hope is once our enemies are defeated, then we can have hope. But all of these things which we hope in are speculative. Hear me out. They're all sort of just kind of like, I mean, I, I hope, I, kinda, I hope, I, ho I hope it works out. Right? They're more akin to wishful thinking. We hope in the next generation. And don't get me wrong, there are some bright kids in the next generation. But then you, you hear about them eating like Tide Pods. And all of a sudden you go, ah, how many Rhodes Scholars do we have versus Tide Pod eaters? And you're, you don't feel so good. Or maybe you have hope in mankind. But most of people are questioning any hope in mankind these days, right? There are more people that believe that the earth is flat today than it feels like any time in human history. So I'm not so sure that we can really have hope in mankind. 
Or we put hope in progress until we discover that progress doesn't solve our problems. In fact, it creates a whole bunch of new ones. I'm struck by an advertisement on television during football over Thanksgiving for a, for a VR headset. And you'll see this ad if you watch sports. I, I just can't believe it. The ad is two neighbors who are both on, in virtual reality playing games together, but in real life they hate each other. And what you think is that the ad's going to lead to saying like, hey, virtual reality, it makes your enemies in real life, your friends, um, in real life. But instead, the ad ends with like, it's all right to hate your real neighbor so long as you can play games together online. It's miserable. And I thought, this is, is this the world that we're, that we're after? A world where in which we live our lives wholly in virtual reality? That, I don't, that doesn't look good. We want hope and we look for hope we try to hope in something but it's always more like wishful thinking what if there was something better that we could hold on to what if you could leave this morning not with just wishful thinking but what if you could have a hope that you could hold on to a hope that was secure well, this is what Jesus talks about. This is my second point. This is how we get hope, how we get real hope, how we get 16 ounces to the pound, full-throated, full-weighted, not diet hope, real hope. How do we get hope? Verse 27 and 28, notice what Jesus says. He says, the Son of Man is coming. So what does he say to do in the midst of the chaotic world? He says, lift your heads up. Lift your heads up. Put your chins up, everybody. Lift your heads up, Jesus says. Why? The Son of Man is coming. He says, you're looking for hope in the wrong things and in the wrong places. Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to come. I'm going to come. And when I return, I will make everything right. And then to prove it, he talks about a tree, right? 29 and 31, he talks, about, he talks about a fig tree. And he says, look at the fig tree. You can tell by the leaves on the fig tree, you know what season's coming next. Well, listen, very few of you have fig trees. Very few of you know fig trees. So let me give you an analogy that might be more helpful for you. It's 2 o'clock. You're driving east on the 10. And you notice that the 405 South Interchange is backed up all the way to Sentinella. You know that you're going to be stuck in traffic. You're certain of it. There's no question about it. You're going to be stuck in traffic. You live in Los Angeles and you are guaranteed to be stuck in traffic. We had like this brilliant little one month period during COVID where it just seemed like, wow, there is no traffic. And it was just for a glimpse of a moment. And then now everything is back to traffic. Today, many of you right, are online because today is the second busiest travel day of the year. The first being Wednesday before Thanksgiving. You can guarantee that people right now, as you are sitting in your luxurious brought chairs, that people are struggling sitting in traffic in our city. You can know it. Here's what Jesus is trying to do when he talks about the Son of Man coming to make all things right. He's trying to move people from speculation to hope, from speculation to trust. Here's the difference. Christian hope is not wishful thinking. Christian hope is not... Well, I mean, 
I hope God works everything out in the end. Christian hope is not, well, I might as well trust Jesus. I mean, he kind of seems better than everybody else. No, no, no. Christian hope is expectancy in what God has promised to do. So hope is not a figment of your imagination. Hope is real because Jesus promised that he will return to make all things right. Look, it's hard to talk about the second coming. Because most times the people who want to talk about the second coming the most are often the people I want to talk to the least. The people who talk about it the most are often the people who are just like, hey, could you, could you chill? But, but the beautiful thing about Advent season is we do talk about it today. And we talk about the importance of a promise that we can hold on to in the midst of this season, in the midst of chaos. We love talking about the incarnation. We sing a bunch of songs. Our whole world will be singing songs about the incarnation. You'll be in malls singing with hearing in stores that definitely are not run by people who love Jesus, but just playing music about Jesus, right? People love incarnation. We're into. We love, as Christians, Good Friday, crucifixion. We love Pentecost being filled, filled with God's spirit. We love the ascension, right? But Jesus coming back is hard. I get it. But here's my contention, brothers and sisters, family and friends. I, and I can't stress enough. You should want Jesus to return. Because Jesus promises that upon his return, that he will make all wrongs right. And no one else can make that kind of guarantee and follow through with it. Jesus talks about his own return a lot. It's almost 300 times in the Bible. And it means that life is not filled with just meaningless events. It means that, it means that God who is with us has not abandoned us or given up on us. That God is not ignoring you. God has not given up on you. In fact, even in the midst of chaos, we can know that God has a plan and a purpose and he invites us to hope Him, hope in him in the midst of it. So if you feel like your world is spinning out of control, maybe this morning you've got financial struggles. Maybe you've got marriage challenges. Maybe you've got family issues. Maybe you've got uncertainty about the next season. Christmas and Advent contain the promise that while you might feel out of control, God has not lost control. God has not forgotten his promises. God has not forgotten you. Some of us sense dread. Some of us are lonely in the season and we don't want to be. We want to buy gifts, but we can't really do that and also pay the bills. Some of us feel like there's so many demands on our time, too much stress in the home, too many expectations to live up to. Some of us are wishing that we could see the people that we can't see because they've moved away. Some of us this season are overwhelmed by sadness. Some of us are going to be tempted, maybe this will be you, to grit your teeth and bear it. I want you to hear that there's a better way, a way that leads to joy, a way that leads to power. 
And if we listen carefully to Jesus, and if we hold tightly to his promises, you'll hear him say to us today, I am coming to make all things new. The future doesn't lie with man. It doesn't lie with nature. It doesn't lie with government. It is, as Jesus says, securely in my hands. And I was born like I said I would be. I died like I said I would. I rose again on the third day like I said I would. I ascended to the Father like I said I would. I sent my spirit like I said I would. I live in you like I said I would. And I am going to come back and make all things new just like I said I would. Jesus says in verse 32 and 33, the unbelieving generation won't last. Heaven won't last earth won't last. The one thing we know will last, the words of Jesus. Hope is not just wishful thinking. It's not just this thin thing that we kind of grab onto, just like, I, I, I hope things get better tomorrow. Hope is real, and you can hold on to it. It is the promises of God. Do you have that hope this morning? Because you can have that hope this morning. It's found in Jesus and nowhere else. My kids hate it when I say the words, want to bet. When I was young, I grew up in a home where my mother used to say, want to bet? And if she said, want to bet, it meant that she was guaranteed to win the bet. My mom didn't bet on anything she speculated about. So if we said, Mom, two plus two isn't four, she'd say, want to bet? She only took bets that she knew were guaranteed. And I picked that up from her. So when my kids will say something like, hey, this movie comes out this day, or hey, this thing just happened, or hey, here's who won the game, or so anything, and I say the words, want to bet? My kids go, no, we don't want to bet. We do not want to bet. Because if I say want to bet, it's because I'm 100% sure. This is the beauty that I want you to see here, right? Is that Jesus' words are the kinds of words that we can bet on. We can bank our lives on. That one day when Jesus returns, we won't have to say, Oh, wow, I didn't expect that. But rather, when Jesus returns, we would together collectively say, Finally! This is what we have been waiting for because this is the hope that we have been holding on to. So let me end by saying, what do we do with hope, right? So here's how to get it. We get it from Christ's promise. What do we do with hope? What do we do while we wait for Jesus to return? Verses 34 through 36, here's what Jesus would say to you and me this morning. He would say, stay expectant. Stay expectant expectant. Keep your eyes on that future day. Live in light of that future day. Live like you expect that Jesus is going to make all things new. When you have expectations, you don't just sit around and do nothing. Some of you are, you traveled for Thanksgiving and you expected to travel, right? You expected to go out of town. And you know that when you're expecting to go out of town, you've got to pack up the house, you've got to clean things, you pack up your bags, you clean the house, you get things ready to get out the door and travel. 
In my home, we don't leave anywhere quickly. There's six of us. If you came to me right now and said, Trevor, I will give you a week-long vacation to Hawaii. You just have to go to the airport right now. I would say you can keep it because there's no way we can get out the house that quickly. Like, there's just no way for us to do it. We got to make sure bags are packed. We got to make sure everything's right. The house is clean. We got a whole checklist we got to do because we are expecting to go on a trip. You prepare for the time you're going to leave and you prepare to come back. In the same way, Jesus invites us to live as though we expect that he is going to fulfill his promises which means we don't sit around and do nothing. In the midst of despair and difficulty, we don't just sit around and do nothing. It also means we don't work like everything is up to us. What we do instead is live our life in light of the reality that Jesus is going to keep his promises. Otherwise, we'll be caught off guard and we'll be surprised. So we stay expectant, this is a season for you, brothers and sisters, where you get to say, I expect that Jesus is going to return and make all things right, and I'm going to live like it. Secondly, not just stay expectant, what do we do? We pray. Prayer is the single action that we do that demonstrates to God that we have no trust in ourselves, but we have it instead in him. Prayer is an act of humility where we say, God, we need you and not we just need more of ourselves. So we stay expectant and we pray. Let me ask you this question. What does it look like for you to be expectant this Christmas season? It wouldn't mean that you would start to believe your work doesn't matter. It wouldn't mean that you'd throw up your hands and go, what's the point? What's the use? It makes no difference. No, you wouldn't do that. But you also wouldn't say, it's all up to me. I can fix it. I can do it. I can heal it. I can make it right. Just give me enough time, energy, and work, and I can do it. No, what you do instead is you'd faithfully work towards the goal, trusting all the while that it is God at work and God who will ultimately keep his promises even when we fail to keep ours. It means keeping your eyes on hope, real Christian hope, not just blind optimism, but expectant hope in promises and in the one who made it. It means taking time to hope. Some of you just need to take time to hope this Christmas season. Maybe that's your to-do list. The, you're going to take a bunch of things off your to-do list and you're going to put, this Christmas season, I am going to hope this season. And it always means, brothers and sisters, it always means that we will work in the direction of our hope. Lewis Smedes once said that hoping for others is hard, but it's not the hardest thing. Praying for others is hard, but it's not the hardest thing. The hardest thing for people who believe in the second coming of Jesus is living the sort of life that makes people say, oh, that's how people are going to live when Jesus returns and takes over the world. That's the kind of life that we need to lead. The kinds where in which we expect Jesus to fulfill his promises. The kinds in which we pray in that direction. We work in that direction. And we show the world that there's a more stable kind of hope. A hope that is real, not just wishful thinking. 
And when we are tempted, as you will be and I will be, to look around for something stable in an unstable world, there is no better place to look than Jesus. So let me ask you as we close this morning, what have you been hoping in? Have you been hoping in your own work ethic? Have you been hoping in karma? Enough bad things happened, now some good things are going to happen to me. Fate. We want you to know hope this year, real hope. Do you know that hope this morning? Do you know the hope you can hold on to, you can bank on, you can bet your life on? Do you know a hope that comes with a guarantee? And on that day when you stand before Jesus, be it at the second coming or before then, will you be prepared to say to Jesus, this is what I have been waiting for. This is what I have been expecting. Or will you say, oh no, I did not see that coming. We want you to be ready for that day. We want you to know where you stand with God. And we want you to know this morning you can know exactly where you stand with God, not by your own work, but by the work of Jesus. Jesus says that on that day we will stand before the Son of Man, and on that day we want to be prepared by being a people who stand in the presence of God himself, having been the kind of people who say, Lord, we didn't trust in our work, we didn't trust in our effort, we didn't trust in our service, we didn't trust in what we have done. We have all the while been trusting in you, what you said, what you promised, what you're up to. You are the one who has held our hope in your hands. You are the one in whom we've placed our hope and our trust. And you can do that this morning. You can know exactly where you stand with Jesus this morning by putting your hope and trust in him. Jesus has the hope you need. Jesus has the hope you were made for. And he offers you his hope today in the midst of your chaos. So let us make time together to receive that hope. And if we're not ready to receive that hope this morning, at the very least, let us look at the spaces in our lives where we tend to put our hope. Let's question it. Does it hold up to the hope and the promises of God? I tell you this morning, it does not. They do not. And my hope is that you see that sooner rather than later. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and we thank you for salvation. We thank you that when we trust Jesus, when we trust his work, his promises, what he has done, we can know where we stand with you. That we don't stand on our own work, our own effort. We don't stand on our own ability to get things right. No, we stand on your grace and your grace alone. And we long for you to come and to make things right. We long to see justice come. We long for the day in which there will be no more hungry, when there will be no more thirsty. We long for the day when, when people will be set free. We, we long for the day where you will make all things right. And we recognize, Lord, that the way that we are made right is now, today, by and through faith, by and through your grace, by and through your son, Jesus. So Lord, help us to have a hope this morning, a real hope, a solid hope, a firm hope, a hope we can hold on to. Help us to be expectant. Help us to pray. 
Help us to work with our hands and feet in the direction of those prayers. It's in your name we pray. Amen.